0: Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Queen's Hall and to this special Edinburgh International Book Festival event in association with Edinburgh UNESCO City of Literature. I'm Catherine Lockerbie, I'm the Book Festival's Director and it's just a total pleasure to be bringing Margaret Atwood to you tonight. This is the final event in our special autumn evening series. This is the first time we've done it, and we wanted to do it for a number of reasons. One is to celebrate and recognise the fact that Edinburgh is now the world's first permanently designated city of literature, a city with books and words and ideas in in its very lifeblood. We wanted to do it because we run a pretty big festival in August, but I thought, well, 689 events, not really quite enough. Let's do a few more. And really because we can't help ourselves, we can't sort of stop ourselves trying to bring you some of the world's <coughs> best writers and thinkers. It's an obsession, and apparently there's, there's no cure. So for the last few nights on stage here, we've had, we had Martin Amos, then we had William Boyd, Then we had the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Gordon Brown. So I think it's about time we had a woman, don't you? Yeah. And what a woman, too! What a woman! Uh, I don't need to describe to you the extraordinary, prolific quality and diversity of Margaret Atwood's work. Tonight is Booker Night in London. As we speak, they'll be deciding this year's Booker Prize winner. You're at the real Booker Prize event. You're at the best literary occasion in the UK because, of course, Margaret Atwood is one of the finest ever, I would say, Booker Prize winners. Tonight's event will be chaired by Jenny Brown. Jenny will be known to many of you. She was the very first director of the book festival. She began it all back in 1983 when she was seven years old. Uh, She became head of literature at the Scottish Arts Council when she was nine, I think, and she's now uh, one of the country's leading literary agents. So there'll be a bit of reading, a bit of conversation, questions from you, of course, uh, book signing in the bar, Afterwards, there are some pre signed copies as well if anyone's pressed for time. You'll have a chance to look at, a, look at and buy a range of Margaret Atwood's work, notably including her absolutely superb new collection of stories, Moral Disorder. If you haven't read it yet, you are in for a sublime treat. Um, I really think these are stories that tell us more about what it is to be human. Please now welcome Jenny Brown and Margaret Atwood.
1: Well, good evening, everybody. It's both an honor and a pleasure to be introducing Margaret Atwood and welcome her back to Edinburgh. She's, of course, one of the foremost writers in the world. She's author of over 30 works of fiction, critical essays, and poetry, and her work has been translated into well over 35 languages. She's received many honors and awards for her work, including the Governor General's Award for The Handmaid's Tale and the Norwegian Order of Merit. She's been shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize five times and won in 2000 with The Blind Assassin. And as Catherine said, we're just delighted she's here with us in Edinburgh uh, when she could have been in London for the Booker Prize. We can feel a real connection to both her and her partner, her writing partner, uh, Graham Gibson, for a number of reasons. Graham studied here in Edinburgh in the 1950s, and in the late 70s, the family returned when Graham was the first Scottish-Canadian writing fellow um, in Edinburgh. And Margaret herself has been a regular visitor to the Book Festival, and her events are always instantly sold out. Two years ago, at the Edinburgh International Book Festival, she was presented with the Enlightenment Award. She's got a close association with Edinburgh publisher, Canongate, And she describes Jamie Bing leaping out of a gorse bush and like some borders, um, a sprite out of a borders ballad, and persuading her to write one of the first of Canongate's groundbreaking series on the myths. And last year, her exquisite take on Penelope was published. And now she's back, this time for a month, as the first Scottish Arts Council International, International Writing Fellow which has been set up in the memory of Muriel Spark. The fellowships entailed a stay at, in Argyle at the Cove Park Writers' Retreat and she's also into, undertaken a number of public appearances including at Stanza Festival at St Andrew's at the weekend when she was reading her poetry and next week she uh, takes part in a discussion with Lewis Hyde about his book The Gift on creativity and its moral obligations. But first of all, let's welcome Margaret Atwood as she reads and talks about her new book, Moral Disorder.
2: Thank you you very much. It's wonderful to be here and I've been enjoying it a lot. Um, It's a particularly nice time of year in Edinburgh. not too hot, not too cold not too dark not too bright, it's perfect <laughs> moral disorder is a, is a book of entwined stories, it should probably have a new uh, word to destri- describe the form, maybe we could call it a storovel which is a, sort of like a novel sort of like stories but not exactly either one and um it's got some of the same characters in all of the stories and it's also got a number of different times. Um, so the one I'm going to read from is called My Last Duchess and in it the central character is an adolescent and it takes place in the, in the 50s. As you know, My Last Duchess is the name of a poem by Robert Browning which was standard on the curriculum in those days. And you had to write about it on your final exam going out of what we call high school and what you call secondary school and it was those exams that determined whether or not you would go on to university and which one. So I'm coming in in the the middle of the story the, um, the narrator is speaking and she's speaking about the teacher who is leading them through this poem we pitied the other female teachers in our school hopeless ill groomed drudges overwrought and easily distracted shackled to a thankless task namely teaching us but we did not pity Miss Bessie it wasn't only her no-nonsense professional appearance the boys in the class respected it was the fact that she had an M.A those two letters were a qualification they stood for something important like M.D so the boys respected that but they also respected the tight leash on which she kept them Richard, do you have something amusing to say? If so, be so kind as to say it to all of us. David, that observation is beneath you. You can do better than that. A man's reach should exceed his grasp. Robert, was that a flimsy attempt at wit? (coughs) Sarcastic was the word we used about such remarks, but Miss Bessie was never sarcastic about honest blunders she was patient with those now then that's my last Duchess painted on the wall said Miss Bessie looking as if she were alive as if she were alive class what does as if tell us this time she did wait I never knew, none of us knew, when one of her waits would set in. They always woke me up. It was the suspense, the looming danger, the threat of being pounced on, called by name, forced to speak. At such times my mouth would fill with words, too many of them, a glutinous pudding of syllables I would have to mold into speech while Miss Bessie's ironic narrowed eyes beamed their message at me, you can do better than that. During such waiting periods I found it best to look down. Otherwise, Miss Bessie might single me out, and so I busied myself by making notes in my notebook. He bumped her off, I wrote. (laughs) Bumped her off was not a thing I would ever have said out loud in class, as it was slang, and Miss Bessie disapproved of such sloppy and vulgar talk. I'd picked up Bumped Off from the detective stories I was in the habit of reading as a way of evading my homework, or at least delaying it. Unfortunately, there were a lot of detective stories in the house, along with historical novels and books about World War I and about monasteries in Tibet, a country where women could have two husbands at the same time. And about naval warfare and Napoleonic times And about the form and function of the fallopian tubes <laughs> If I wasn't in the mood for a whole book I'd go through the stacks of old lives and times And Chatelaines and good housekeepings My parents were reluctant to throw anything out And puzzle over the ads What was a douche <laughs> And the articles on fashion and personal problems Teenage rebellion, five antidotes Halitosis, your silent enemy <laughs> Can this marriage be saved? I'd learned quite a lot over the years by avoiding what I was supposed to be learning Bumped off, I wrote The Duke had bumped off the Duchess Cheap flusies often got bumped off "'and so did hot tomatoes and dumb bunnies, "'and so did sleazy broads. <laughs> "'Bunked suggested a blow on the head "'with a blunt instrument, such as a blackjack, "'but this was not likely the method "'the Duke had used on the Duchess. "'Nor had he buried her in the cellar "'and covered up the grave with wet cement.' or cut her up into pieces and heave the pieces into the lake, or drop them down a well or left them in a park, like the husbands in some of the more grisly narratives I'd encountered. I thought he'd most likely poisoned her. It was a well-known fact among the writers of historical romances that dukes of that time were expert poisoners. They had rings with hollow stones on the fronts. They slid the stones open when nobody was looking and slipped the the poison into the people's flagons of wine in powder form. Arsenic was a substance they favored. The poor duchess would have sickened gradually. A doctor would have been called in, a sinister doctor in the pay of the duke. This doctor would have mixed up a final lethal potion to finish her off. There would have been a touching death scene and then a fancy funeral with candles, and after that, the Duke would have been free to go on the prowl for another beautiful girl to turn into a duchess and then bump off. (laughs) On second thought, I decided that the Duke wouldn't have lifted a finger in the matter himself, He was far too snobbish to have bothered with any of the actual poisoning. I gave commands, he said, later on in the poem. The dirty work would have been done by some thug with a name like First Murderer, (laughs) as in plays by Shakespeare, while the Duke himself was elsewhere dropping names and paying phony compliments and showing off his costly artworks. I had a picture of how he would look. He'd be dark and suave and insultingly polite and would wear a lot of velvet. (laughs) There were movie stars like that, such as James Mason. They always had classy English accents. The Duke would have had an accent like that, even though he was Italian. (laughs) Well, said Miss Bessie, the subject is as if. We don't have all day. Marilyn? Maybe she's dead, said Marilyn. Very good, Marilyn, said Miss Bessie. That is one possibility. The attentive reader, and I said attentive, Bill, this does apply to you. (laughs) Unless you have some other more important engagement to attend to? No, The attentive reader would certainly wonder that and might wonder also, if the Duchess is indeed dead, how she might have died. Moving along to After School. After school I walked home across the football field, a locale that had once been frightening to me and forbidden and significant in some way I couldn't define which, which had now shrunk to an irrelevant stretch of muddy grass a couple of younger kids were having a smoke behind the field house where assorted orgies involving a girl called Loretta were rumored to have taken place I carried my big black leather binder full of notes in front of me hugging it to my chest with both arms my textbooks piled on top of it All the girls did this. It prevented anyone from staring at our breasts, which were either too small and contemptuous, or else too big and hilarious, (laughs) or else just the right size. But what size was right? Breasts of any kind were shameful and could attract catcalls of get a load of the knockers from... (laughs) greasy-haired boys lounging in groups or from young men in cars or else they would chant I must, I must, I must develop my bust (laughs) I better, I better or I'll never wear a sweater (laughs) while moving their bent arms back and forth like a cartoon chickens although in truth the catcalling didn't happen very much there was always the fear that it would To yell back at the boys was brazen, to ignore them was supposed to be dignified, though it didn't feel dignified, it felt degrading. Merely to have breasts was degrading, but not to have any at all would have been worse. Stand up straight, shoulders back, don't slouch, our physical education teacher used to bark at us during volleyball practice centuries ago in that very same gym where we would soon be writing the finals. But what did she know? She herself was flat-chested, and anyway, very old. Forty, at least. (laughs) Breasts were one thing. They were in front, where you could have some control over them. Then there were bums, which were behind and out of sight, and thus more lawless. Apart from loosely-gathered skirts, nothing much could be done about them. Hey, hey, swing and sway, Get a load of that wiggle. She's walking home, as it turns out, with Bill. I'm not going to pass it, said Bill. I'm going to flunk out. No, you're not, I said. I just don't get it. Don't get what? What's going on? What's going on, and what? I said, though I knew what he meant. That goddamn Duchess poem. God damn was the worst swearing Bill ever did in front of me. To say the other words, the F word for instance, would have meant he thought I was the kind of girl you could say such things to. A shoddy girl. I sighed. Okay, I'll run over it again. The poem is by Robert Browning. He was one of the most important poets of the 19th century. It's a dramatic monologue. That means only one person is speaking, like a monologue in a play. The form is iambic pentameter run on couplets. I get that part, said Bill. Form wasn't difficult for him before it, because it involved counting. A sonnet, a sestina, an ABAB rhyme scheme ballad, identifying these caused him no problems. I finished my ice cream and tucked the end of the cone in between the stone wall and the funeral parlor's flower bed in which a neat row of red tulips was arranged. I felt lazy. I wasn't really in an instructive mood, but Bill was leaning forward. He was actually listening. So, it's the Duke of Ferrara speaking, I said. The whole poem is told from his point of view. That's important because they always ask about point of view. We know it's Ferrara because it says Ferrara right under the title of the poem. (laughs) Ferrara was a noted center for the arts in Italy, so it makes sense for the Duke to have a picture collection. The time is the Renaissance. There was a lot of murdering going on then. (laughs) Okay, so far? (laughs) Yeah, but... Okay, so... The duke is talking to an envoy from the count. We know it's the count because it says that right there at the end. He's dickering for the count's daughter. He wants to get hold of her for his next duchess. It doesn't say which count. They're upstairs, the duke and the envoy. We know that because they come downstairs at the end. (laughs) Where it says, Nay, we'll go together down, sir. "'Why put that in?' said Bill. "'Put what in?' "'Who cares whether they're upstairs or downstairs?' (laughs) (laughs) Bill was already getting exasperated. "'They have to be upstairs because there are other people downstairs. "'See, look, it says right here, and the Duke wants a private conversation. "'Anyway, the portrait of the Duchess is upstairs. "'That's what the Duke is taking the envoy to see.'" The duke pulls a curtain. There's the picture of his last duchess behind it. His last duchess. Get it? The picture has verisimilitude. What? <laughs> <laughs> verisimilitude. It means lifelike. Put that word into your answer on the exam. <laughs> <laughs> I bet it's worth a whole mark. Cripe, said Bill, giving a roof a little grin. Sure, if you say so. Okay write it down for me. Okay, so they stand looking at this duchess picture. Then basically, the Duke tells the envoy about her and what was wrong with her and why he bumped her off. Or shut her up in a convent, said Bill hopefully. Miss Bessie had proposed this as an alternative, saying that Browning himself had done so. The boys in the class preferred this milder version, oddly enough, They could see wanting to dump your wife because she was boring or ugly or a nag or unsatisfactory in some other way. They could understand the desire for a better model, but killing the first wife seemed extreme to them. They were nice boys intended to be doctors and so forth. Only pervs like the Duke would have to go all the way. (laughs) She would have been out of his hair in a convent, said Bill. She'd be happier in there anyway. The guy was a pain in the neck. I don't buy that, I said. He definitely killed her. All smiles stopped together. That's really sudden. It's pretty definite. But on the exam, you need to say there's the two choices. Anyway, he got rid of her. Why is what the poem's about. What the Duke says is that she smiled too much. That's what I don't get, said Bill. (laughs) It's a really dumb reason. And there's another thing I don't get. If he's so smooth, Miss Bessie had dwelt for some time on the Duke's smoothness, though she hadn't called it that. She'd called it cultivated and sophisticated. If he's so smooth, why is he dumb enough to tell all this to the envoy? The envoy's just (laughs) to the count and say, cancel marriage. (laughs) The guy's a dangerous creep. I got up from the funeral home wall, straightened down my skirt, front and back, picked up my books. We'll go through it again on Saturday, I told him. I'll copy out my notes for you. I'm not going to pass it, said Bill. LAUGHTER <laughs>
1: That's a very typical, wonderful, brilliant glimpse and it's glimpses we get in this book of a protagonist that we take to be the same protagonist throughout, although you never make this explicit. Oh, I think that's pretty safe. Good. Good. Anyway, I just, I <laughs> just said so. so. <laughs> um, you know uh, it's I'll, the
2: same protagonist because I just
1: said it's the same, same thing. protagonist. <laughs> Her name is Nell. <laughs>
2: yes. Yeah.
1: Um, and I wonder, what, what made you decide to take, adopt this form? Well, it's, um,
2: it's actually a form that a number of people have used before, so it's not an invention of mine. Uh, Alice Munro has a couple of books that proceed along those lines. One of them is called Rose and Flow, or possibly Flow and Rose, In Canada, it was called, Who Do You Think You Are?, but it was thought that people in other countries wouldn't understand what that meant, although Scots apparently understand it perfectly well. (laughs) You know, Alice, part of her family came from Scotland, and part of it was related to James Hogg, The Attrick Shepherd. She has a book coming out this fall with that in it, by the way, just putting a little plug Mm. here. Uh, so she's done it, and Mavis Gallant, another of our very good short story writers, has done a bunch of stories called the Lynette Muir stories, which are like that as well. So it's, it's nothing new, and I suppose you could call it a way of writing a novel without actually writing a novel, or a way of writing stories that means that you don't have to start a new in each story with a completely different person that you have to
1: introduce um, again. But we have this brilliant evocations of decades in the book. Um, and we just had very much evocation um, there as Nell as an adolescent. Um, and that, has, I think, has been a, a, an interest of yours. Um, to get the precise details of a period, whether it be through food or textures or clothes. Um, and it does seem to be something that it is very striking about this book.
2: Well, that's good. You, you have to be quite precise about things because if you aren't, somebody's going to write you a letter about it. <laughs> You're wrong about <laughs> So you just know that will happen unless
1: you are quite precise. There's a facing up to age in the book um, from the characters and it's that seesawing of being a child of parents, becoming a parent to yourself and then the relationship you then have with your ageing parents. Um, there's a lovely moment, a very poignant moment when Nell's father turns to her with his impaired eyesight and says you seem to have become old all of a sudden what's driving motivation in the book to capture this need for children to understand their parents and, and understand their stories and know their stories before they've well, gone the strange thing
2: about writing is that you don't start with motivations like that, you don't say I'm going to sit down and write a book in order to capture this or that or the other thing um, I think most talking and thinking about books is done backwards in a way because of course the reader has the benefit of the book' it's, it, it exists it's there in front of you and you can you can make statements about what the book actually does but when you're writing the book you usually don't know uh, what you're doing because you're in the middle of it and you may think you're setting out to do one thing and find that you've, in fact, done quite a different thing. That quite frequently happens to me, so I never talk about what was my motivation in writing the book. Uh, It might not make any sense whatsoever, because the finished product bears no relation to that. So, for instance, when I started writing The Blind Assassin, it was going to be about something altogether different. (laughs) it turned out to be the way it was after about four false starts
1: mm-hmm. um, The title is Moral Disorder and you attribute this to Graham Yes, Graham was, Graham was writing a novel
2: called Moral, Moral Disorder and then he stopped writing it in the middle and said I'm not going to write novels anymore but I always <laughs> thought it was a great title so I said can I have that title he said sure I <laughs> don't <laughs> have any use for it <laughs> So that is the title of the book, and it's also the title of one of the stories in the book, which happens to be about a lot of animals, um, or it has a lot of animals in it. And then after I had called the book that and done all of those kinds of things, I looked it up on the web and discovered to my alarm that it is also a phrase used by the religious right in the United States to denote homosexuality. Of which there is none in the um, story called Moral Disorder, unless the animals are up to things that we aren't told about.
1: But you don't, you don't to reveal that. No. But of course, that the, you choose the, uh, to start the book with a story that is out of order chronologically, although That's there's right. a lot of jumping yes, back I, and forwards. I, st-
2: I start in the now. I start in the now and then go back to the then and then the stories work their way through the then and end up basically at the now
1: mm-hmm. um, so it's like it's a circle there's a lovely um, in that first chapter um, Nell and her as she's becoming quite old says these are the tenses that define us now past tense back then future tense not yet we live in the small window between them the space we've only recently come to think of as still and a lot of the book of course is back then Um, there are details in the book which a lot of reviewers have picked up as being identifiable or having parallels to your own life the mother is a skater the father is a scientist working the books the protagonist is a much younger sister and I think one of your own teachers makes a cameo appearance Miss Bessie Miss
2: Miss Bessie is definitely Miss Bessie and her name was Miss Bessie but she's now no
1: longer on the planet so it's okay to do that Um, But I think in the past you've commented that it's typical of the cynicism of our age that if you write a novel everyone assumes it's about real people thinly disguised but if you write an autobiography everyone assumes you're lying your head off (laughs) That's right, it's very true Um, How do you feel about readers looking for autobiographical clues? Does it matter? They'll do it anyway
2: And uh, I think my best example was I wrote a book called Lady Oracle in which the protagonist has been enormously fat, and then she's lost all the weight, which she kind of misses. It's been a sort of buffer zone between her and everything else. So I started reading from this book, and I began my reading by saying, I I bear no resemblance to this person. I've never been enormously overweight. I never lost uh, the weight. And then I read a section from it, and the first audience question was, how did you lose all the weight? Oh. And I got, I got so many letters from people saying, how did you do it? Or indeed, enclosing in their favorite diet in case, I should have a, in case I should have a relapse. So they, you know, no matter what you do, they're going to read in. My other good example is a man who said to me, The Handmaid's Tale, now that's autobiographical, isn't it? And I said, well, I said, I said, "Um, how can it be? It's set in the future. And he said, you're not going to get out of it that way. (laughs) So, so, So people will do that whether you want them to or not. And in a way, it's a compliment. And what it means is, I found this very real. And therefore, it must really be about somebody and who is the most likely suspect but you. And i found myself doing that about other writers' work, even though I have known perfectly well the real shape of their lives and that things didn't come out that way and that they were somewhat otherwise, I find myself doing it and thinking,
1: aha, so this is the secret. And then thinking, you idiot. (laughs) Alice Munro had a nice expression about that. Didn't she say it had to be started dough from the real world? It has to be what starter dough from the yes, real world Yes there has to be starter yeah, yeah. dough from
2: the real world or another way of putting it which is mine and a bit more typical of me there has to be some blood in the cookie <laughs> <laughs> to make the gingerbread man come alive and whose blood is is it more likely to be than yours uh, of course there has to be something there has to be a core of something authentic there for you to build a fiction on
1: can we just talk, turn to your time in Scotland? You're here for a month um, for the inaugural Mural Spark Fellowship. Can you tell us a little bit more about your visit here, what you've seen, what you've encountered, and how your perception of Scotland might have changed since you spent since a the lo- very years. first time mm. I was
2: here. Well, Edinburgh has become a good deal smarter, as you probably <laughs> realise, and the smart part of it, the posh part, has become much bigger. I mean, all of those stores, Mm -hmm. uh, all of those shops, excuse me, um, the range of shops has enormously increased. The prices have gone up, although prices generally have gone up. But Edinburgh still has an enormous range, more than any other city I've ever been into, of very interesting used clothing shops. You've been to
1: Armstrong's. uh, I have been to Armstrong's
2: (laughs) and others. I haven't just been to Armstrong's. And I noticed that there's still a bingo going on. Mm -hmm. Still a bingo, although there are also now slot machines, welcome, good value for money, Mm -hmm. free tea and coffee. (laughs) All All welcome. I haven't gone into that yet. When I was living here, I did go off to the bingo with one of my pals of that time, but it was in the days when everybody smoked. It was really quite ferocious. I didn't win anything. (laughs) Worse luck. (laughs) So yes, it's gotten a lot. And the Traverse Theatre, of Mm. course, has been built since that time. And uh, there have been a a lot of changes. It's really a remarkable city for its size. There's a lot going on in it. Um, Comparably, I really can't think of another city of that size Mm. that has that much happening, which was not always the
1: case. And you've been spotted in bookstores buying up Scottish literature, you and Graham, and um, I understand... Who's your, who's your informant? Oh, I couldn't <laughs> possibly say. Um, and you've also uh, been uh, to this cross-party uh, parliamentary group yes. on Scottish publishing Saw the and the new writing. parliament building. Yes. And I just wondered how, y- how you felt about Scottish literature now, whether you have seen great changes in it as well over the years since those, since th- those times mm. I think it's increased in
2: strength really tremendously it has had and it's odd because it's a very old literature so you think it wouldn't have had this problem but it did have in the in recent years and mm-hmm. years within memory some problems being recognized as a legitimate thing to teach in universities particularly modern Scottish literature So we know how that feels. We had the same kinds of problems. It's kind of odd for me as a Canadian to think that you had it because, of course, the literature is so old, Uh, but you have had it. Um, Welcome to the club of (laughs) Scotland, Australia, mm. New Zealand, Canada, not so much Ireland. They've always stood by their literature, I think, pretty much. Um, but there was this feeling that, if you were a member of this club, that anything from one of those countries somehow couldn't really be, somehow couldn't really be good. But I, surely that's
1: in the past now. Yeah, I think it's safely in the past. It was wonderful to see you quoting and also misquoting Patrick Spence in your recent Guardian article um, when you were talking about the long pen. Well, I altered it. Yes. yes. (laughs) (laughs) Took liberties with the text. Could you tell us a little bit about the long pen? Well, the reason I was quoting Sir Patrick
2: Spence was that I did the first Scotland-Canada long-distance remote signing from Dunfermline, (laughs) that town so famous for Patrick Spence having put up his hand fatally when the king said, who's going to sail the ship of mine? (laughs) So uh, I rewrote it it to go with the long pen, and it was in fact Kate Moss who put up her hand. And she signed from London, Kate Moss, the model, sorry, (laughs) Kate Moss, not the model, Kate Moss, the author, signed from London to Toronto, where we were having a 23,000 attendee, word on the street book fair. And she signed into a tent in Toronto as it turns out, and spoke with her fans, and they spoke with her, told her what they wanted her to write in the fronts of their books, Happy Birthday, Auntie Mabel, or whatever it might be. And she wrote it in London and sent it across the Atlantic, and a pen descended on their book and wrote the exact same thing. So she did that from London, and then I did it from Dunfermline. And people think this is some kind of an auto pen, you know, the Donald Rumsfeld special that signed... (laughs) Signs things when you're not in the room, but it's not like that at all. (laughs) (laughs) As it turned out in his case, letters of of condolence to parents of dead soldiers, which was really not what you want to hear. But um, with the long pen, you have to be there because it signs on the book, in the other city, whatever it is that you have put Mm. there at your end. It's really a signing... It's just that the ink comes out in a different place.
1: How long did this take to develop?
2: How long did it take to develop? From beginning to Mm. end, from the point that we started out, about a year, sorry, about two and three-quarters years, I would say, by now. And when we started, the first one we did was creaky, could only sign on a flat piece of paper, was uh, shaky, it wasn't exact, and it made a horrible noise like a dentist drill. So we thought, well, we've signed remotely, but this will not do. So we went off and made another different one, which burst into flames and flew across the room, so we (laughs) couldn't have that one either. And then we started on the one that we've ended up with, except we've made improvements to it, a lot of improvements since it embarrassingly didn't work from the excel center in London in in March. Nothing worked at the excel center. Nothing. Before. Well, I'm, yeah, no, nothing actually did work at the excel center, but the other things that didn't work didn't have press of the world there watching them not work. <laughs> yes, that was pretty horrible. Uh, but since that's ta- that time it's it's smaller, faster and completely accurate and best of all goes across the Atlantic and makes the signature on the other end. Oh, well, I hope you might bring it to Edinburgh sometime. Well, why not? Mm. Yes, I think Edinburgh is a natural mm. place for there to be uh, one or two mm. or three. <laughs> <laughs> but Scotland yes. is, as a whole is a good place because what it's really wonderful for is places where people would normally not be sent or it's wonderful for people who, people who themselves wouldn't normally be sent. Um, children's writers, for instance, are mm-hmm. seldom toured. When they are toured, they're often somewhat exploited and made to be substitute teachers, uh, which is something they often don't enjoy. And then they get all those childhood illnesses, which they can also <laughs> <laughs> do without having. Um, but with this, first of all, it's a TV screen that mm. talks back to you. Kids love it. They actually try to climb into it. And number two, you don't have to get the uh, awful flu that hangs on for <laughs> seven weeks. Fantastic. <laughs> or the measles. <laughs>
1: <laughs> We've, you've said in the past that the Canadian character is particularly paranoid. Have you remarked any similarities then between the Scots and the Canadians?
2: Canadians being particularly paranoid? Yeah. Did I say paranoid? Okay. Oh, Canadian writers being particularly paranoid? Oh, just or just Canadi-
1: Canadians in general? wonder what I meant. And, um, and, and, the Nova Sco- and the Nova Scotians having a very deadpan... Nova Scotians <laughs> have a very
2: deadpan humour, it's yeah. true. Maybe that was a sample of it yeah. that I just did. LAUGHTER <laughs> Yes, they like to tell you barefaced lies um, with a completely straight face to see whether or not you'll believe them. They do that. So you have to be careful around people like me. But it's very good for <laughs> fiction writers, you know, it's very good for them. We should bring what up the, the Scots house. The really do that, the Canadians also do, is if you have a. If it's thought that you have an inflated sense of yourself, they will get out the pin. (laughs) You know, put it into the balloon. And that's where Who Do You Think You Are as a book title comes from.
1: The Scots would identify with that. Apparently they do. (laughs) (laughs) Could we have the house lights up because we will have some time for questions and we've got a roving microphone uh, both in the upper gallery and in, on the floor. And if you'd like to ask a question, please just raise your hand. Yes, some questions in this room here.
0: Hi, I think Jenny said that in her introduction that you're one of the world's foremost
2: writers. What, I mean, I agree, but what does it feel like when someone says that about you? I'm gonna have to speak like this. There, I'm gonna have to speak like this. Uh, Well, first of all, no Canadian is allowed to think they're one of the world's foremost writers. You know that, because of what I just said. (laughs) Uh, And number two, the trick is staying alive long enough. You know, Because then all the other world's foremost writers who are older than you die off, and you sort of move up the line, so that suddenly you're one of the world's foremost writers because all of the ones who used to be that are no longer on the planet. Um, So actually, it feels kind of old, put in those terms. (laughs) Uh, If anybody said that of a 30-year-old, nobody would believe them. You have to be of a certain age to have somebody say that about you. And I also love the one of. You know, is that one of 3,000, or is it one of... (laughs) to, or just exactly what is this one of (laughs) which we speak. You didn't notice among my awards that I've also won the Swedish Humor Award. I bet you you didn't know there was one. uh, It's one of the things you have to do on the way to becoming one of the world's foremost.
1: (laughs) Is Is that a Nova Scotian? No, it's Swedish. No, it's a Swedish, yeah. It's
2: Swedish, yes. No, it's, it's actually Swedish. And um, I wasn't able to collect it myself. My publishers went and collected it in the pouring rain. They were quite annoyed with me. And it turned out to be a big cube of crystal, which they carted back to the publishing office where somebody stole it. So I don't even <laughs> actually have the Swedish human award, but I have won it.
1: <laughs> There's another question in the... I had to Body put that in
2: because you said about the Norwegians and they're in locked in deadly rivalry. If I hadn't said about the Swedes, they'd be mad at me forever.
0: <laughs> um, you, said, you said Handmaid's Tale wasn't autobiographical,
2: but are you worried that it's be becoming prophetic? Prophetic. Well, there is a little bit of autobiography in The Handmaid's Tale. I put my high school gym into it.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: Including what happened there? Uh, well, just that's where the opening scene is set. Is um, it, might it be becoming prophetic? Well, what is prophecy but an analysis of the present time? Because nobody can really predict the future. It hasn't happened yet. And when I wrote the book, which was in 1985, I was looking at the chessboard of the time. But I also made it a rule for the book not to put anything into it that human beings hadn't already done to other human beings. So there's nothing um, foreign to our history in that book. I did assemble all the bits together in one place, an unlikely place, but when you come to think of it, not that unlikely. Because the United States did not begin as an 18th century democracy, it began as a 17th century theocracy. Some of those roots are still there, you may have noticed.
1: (laughs) I'm sorry, Upper Gallery, if we're not seeing your questions. When you write your books... Um, there's somebody f-
2: there's somebody up there for next time, by the way. Right up there. Okay. <laughs> um, hello, where are you?
1: When you write your
2: books, the fiction, is it that you, you think of an idea or something resonates and then how does it work in terms of research? Do you, do you come up with... Or, or does a seed spring up and, and interest you and then do you research and then does it begin to unfold? Because you were saying
1: when you first write it you don't know where you're going so how does it begin to take shape? Do you research first? How does it work?
2: It works like Alice in Wonderland in which the verdict is first. (laughs) Verdict first. Trial afterwards. Uh, So I, I actually research as I go along and as I come across things that I have to research. If I do too much research ahead of time I know it's going to accumulate a big pile of stuff that I won't be able to assimilate. Uh, by assimilate, I mean make it a natural part of the, of the fiction. You can sometimes tell books like that because you come across big lumps in them. You know, you're reading a, along and then you come upon a big lump of factual information <laughs> <laughs> that kind of stops the flow. Um, so I try not to do that too much, what it means that I was, I'm always writing, I'm always researching backwards. I'll write something and then I'll research it to see if it's true. <laughs> Sometimes it isn't and I have to rewrite that bit. For instance, I had a great scene in Alias Grace in which a man gets hanged and I had the central character present at the hanging and she does a really good feint. Uh, during that hanging but then I discovered that she wasn't there because this was a an historically based novel by the time that man was hanged she had been taken somewhere else so I had to scrap that um, make it into a, something she was thinking rather something she was seeing that goes on all the time there, there was a gentleman up there just just yell, I'll repeat your question. It's, it's okay, just yell. He's not going to. It's... Yes, good. Oh, you're the guy with the mic, you know?
1: Yeah. The... <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs>
2: quick, somebody up there, ask a question.
1: Oh, okay. question up there.
2: <laughs> Sorry about that, I thought you were just being ignored. <laughs>
1: The microphone is making its way. Yes, I can
2: see it's like the wave in a football game. the
1: of the gallery.
2: <laughs> Scotland won the other day. That was good. You know, I saw all these people in kilts in the train station. I said, is there a football game? They said, yes. It was in Glasgow. They actually won. People were <laughs> people it were, shocked were us a too. bit surprised, weren't they? Well, that was good. Right, yeah, hi. Um, we've been talking a lot about your fiction this evening and how people read autobiographical details into it. My question is, do you ever, have you ever considered actually writing an autobiography? Have I considered ever writing an autobiography? Yes. Well, knowing what I know about them, which is that as soon as you write one, people call you a liar. <laughs> um, I'm not sure that I've, I want to, to tell you the truth. Um, to tell you the truth, isn't that good? <laughs> so no, I, I haven't considered doing it. And I used to be very against them. I used to be against um, biographies and autobiographies of any kind. I just wanted to read the work. I didn't want to know about the lives of the people who had done the work. But I find as I grow older, I become a lot nosier. And um, I am quite interested in reading biographies now. Uh, The trouble is that those with the really lurid biographies, um, action-packed and filled with scandalous incident are rarely writers. You know, some of them are, but by and large they're not. They're likely to be other kinds of people.
1: Whose biographies do you like to read?
2: Well, from what I've mentioned, mm. um, there was a really good one of Stalin recently. Now that's lurid. Mm. Yeah. Very lurid. Yes. Genghis Khan that was, <laughs> that was lurid. Attila the Hun I'm, I'm reading the follow up I'm reading about Kublai Khan now but it's not quite the life trajectory that, that Genghis Khan had because, because the, the first one started out poor, you know it's one of those classic rags to riches stories you start out poor, you work your way up, you slaughter millions and then <laughs> but it's sort of explicable you know, whereas, the, whereas the, the next generation just kind of inherited all of that. They did slaughter a lot of people, but, but they didn't have to work up to it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> question in the middle. What's
2: your favorite to win the booker tonight, and why? What's my favorite to win the booker? Just back to your question. There's a very good book about, um, I think it's called... It's called Three Battles and it's the, it's the period leading up to the invasion of England by William the Conqueror and it's got the biographies of the three of the men involved in all of that. So I recommend it for lurid as well, pretty lurid, action-packed, lots of incidents, coincidence. It needn't have gone that way. Um, yes, now who's uh, my favorite to win the booker? I've got no idea. But apparently the, bookie, the bookies are favoring Sarah Waters. This is what I'm told. And I've got no idea because I haven't actually read all of the books yet, although I've read some of them. But you know, you can't tell by reading the books. Often it's not the one you think. And the bookie, the chief bookie from Ladbrokes used to go on the radio. Does he still do that? He was hilarious. He, he would actually sequester himself, read all of the books, and do the form on the judges as if they were horses, <laughs> and then do the, do the form on the authors. <laughs> it my humble opinion, so I was running out front, but you know, this, this other one, this is a dark horse, this might come up behind.
1: <laughs> were you a favorite? I was 2000? a favorite. Yeah, mm-hmm. I
2: was. I came up and became a favorite for that one. And the thing is that the bookies are quite frequently right. It's uncanny. They're not always, but they're frequently right. In fact, I was such a favorite, they closed the book on me, I think, a couple of days before.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and what's it like, that moment?
2: That it moment? It must be that, you're, that it, you know, no, that you're told. No, no, not at all. You're, you really are not told. Well, first of all, I had been to a number of them already. It was my fourth one and I'd seen the technology change. When, we, when I first started with it, it was 1985 or 6, and they had big cumbersome TV cameras and great big spotlights, and they would wheel these big cumbersome TV cameras around from table to table and watch you hoovering up your veg. <laughs> and that year they had white tablecloths and orange carrots and peas and this was a mistake because <laughs> when people spilled their carrots and peas they really showed up <laughs> so I think the next time I went it was pink tablecloths and more harmonizing vegetables that <laughs> didn't show up so much um, but you could really tell then because the lights would go off you and light up somebody else and you would think aha that's they've been told because the cameramen are told they're getting it through their microphones and their ears mm-hmm. But by the time I actually won it, um, they had portable cameras that they were carrying around on their shoulders. They didn't have the big spotlights, and they had, they had about four cameramen lurking around so that you couldn't tell, you know, because they were focusing on people and then drifting around, walking around. Our, our daughter was there, and she said that she knew because the cameraman winked at her. But... <laughs> My theory is that he might have winked at her anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, fashion mistake of the night. I'd got new shoes. Never do that. My feet hurt. I'm afraid we're going to have to bring this session to a close. Oh, come on. Let's let's end on a slightly higher note. Oh, than my come feet. on then. Yeah. <laughs>
1: We have one more question in the front row. And do you
2: have a particular favourite character from your Do I have a favourite character? Yeah. Well, you happen to have asked one of the unanswerable questions. And uh, amongst the unanswerable questions is what's your favourite book? What's your favourite book of your own that you've written? And what's your favourite character? And I never answer any of those because it immediately raises the question, why, why not any of the others? And anyway, those characters, you've heard it said by authors that those characters have a life of their own. Well, if they really do have a life of their own, they're going to hear about this. <laughs> and they'll they will get back at me somehow. So I never say that. I just say, well, of course, each one is good at a different thing, aren't they? <laughs> just have to appreciate them for what they are good at. And um, what they want to do is go to... Motorcycle school? Well, that's just
1: their talent, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Now we really are going to have to close. Margaret will be uh, signing books in the bar immediately out this door here. Um, Thank you so much for tonight. Thank you so much. All best wishes with the rest of your stay in Edinburgh. Come back, bring your long pen back, and uh, but in the meantime, thank you so much for such an entertaining evening. Thank you.